in chapter 2 today, so you can open your Bibles up there. And we went through chapter 1 for the last couple weeks, and we are slowing things down. I've had a few people ask, are we going to go a chapter at a time each week? Probably not, at least initially. I think as we get into like chapters 4 and, and through 22, there will be times where we do take bigger chunks, where we uh, will take a whole chapter at a time. But as we look at the seven churches, uh, I think it's important for us to slow down to really look at each church and not only what it meant in that day, but how it applies to us. So if you remember, chapter 1 showed uh, John kind of recapping what's happened with him that he was in the Spirit on the day of the Lord, which just simply means he was praying, just spending time with the Lord, and we don't know to what that looked like, you know. I mean, probably a lot like our own morning devotion times. Just You get that sweet time with the Holy Spirit sometimes, and, and that's what I picture here, when then there was a loud voice, like a trumpet. And again, we, we tend to think of trumpet as a musical instrument. That's not what it meant in John's day. It was a sound of alarm. In fact, the most common uses were to call people to war or to tell them that the king had arrived. So it wasn't this sweet you know, melody that was playing from the trumpet. It was alarming. It was shocking. And John turns to see seven lampstands and one like the Son of Man standing in the midst of them. And he gives more of a description that there are seven stars in his hands and and we get the breakdown of what all those mean. The description, though, of Jesus, the Son of Man, in that picture is important because a piece of each one of that, or each part of that description is going to be how he identifies himself to each of the seven churches. And it's very relevant to each church. He's told that he is to uh, write down the things which he has seen, That's basically chapter 1. The things which are, which is chapters 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches. And then the things that must must take place after this, which is chapters 4 through 22. Uh, So again, uh, today we're going to be looking at starting chapter 2. We'll be looking at the, the church of Ephesus. And I mentioned this last week, and I think it's important to keep in mind that the seven churches um, represent the entire church. Every church that has ever existed falls in one of these seven categories. Even more than that, I think it covers the entire church age, right? And it applies to all within the church, the body of Christ. Uh, The number seven is significant because it's the, the number of absolute completion. And so while he could have written to nine churches or Six churches wrote to seven because it is a picture of the absolute, complete church. Um, As I said, not only the, the, the gatherings of the believers that we call churches, but I think it represents every family. I think it represents every individual and every marriage, and especially marriage. There are some very cool things that we'll see in, in these churches that are brought out uh, there's specifically a picture of marriage. Uh, first of all, this is the Lord Jesus writing to his bride, probably being one of the greatest, right? Now, as he writes to them, uh, many of the things that he's going to say are encouraging, but there are also plenty of corrections. 
that five out of the seven churches have gone astray. They have gone off track. Two of them are barely hanging in there. And so there's going to be some stern correction. And it's, again, important to remember that this is Jesus writing to the church. I think too often we can look at it, well, John wrote the book of Revelation. No, Jesus wrote the book of Revelation. He dictated it to John. John's the messenger boy, and that's it. And John makes that clear in, in chapter 1 of this is what I've seen and heard. This is, I'm a witness to these things, and that's all I am. And I am writing down what I've been told and what I've seen, right? And so, uh, yeah, these are the words of Jesus to his church. And again, we'll see that the way that they see Jesus will make all the difference. So pray one more time and we'll get into it. God, we uh, thank you for your word. And we pray that you would open our minds, our hearts and our ears to receive all that you have for us. We want to be encouraged and we want to be corrected as we get into your word today. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 2, verse 1, says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, these things, says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them to be liars. And you have persevered and have had patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. We talked about the seven lampstands. We're told at the end of chapter 1, the seven lamps, golden lampstands represent the seven churches. And the seven stars that are in his hand are the seven, it says angels, but the word angel simply means messenger. So it's written to the seven leaders or pastors of those churches. And it really does make sense. Why would Jesus write a letter through John to an angel if it was speaking about a supernatural angelic being that he could just speak to, right? So the word messenger is what uh, we're seeing there. And he tells him to write to the messenger of Ephesus. Now, uh, I've talked about this before that... uh, this was a trade route, right? And Ephesus was the first city on that trade route, and it loops around in the same order that he addresses these seven churches. Ephesus was a huge city. It was uh, an incredible trade city, and it was known for art and culture. It was considered to be a very classy city in a lot of ways. It had a huge amount of wealth, and uh, there were a lot of reasons, trade being probably the biggest one, but another big one is that the Temple of Diana was there, uh, which served a couple of purposes. So first of all, the Temple of Diana, or Diana, was the fertility goddess, uh, which came along with a whole ton of immorality, right? The temple priestesses were prostitutes, and, and so they would work at bringing people into the temple and, and so tons and tons of immorality surrounded the temple, but it was also a bank. And not only for the wealthy of the area, but for the wealthy of the entire known world. 
In fact, other countries and kings would bring their money to be stored and guarded in the temple of Diana. So as a result, again, there was a huge amount of wealth within the city of Ephesus. Uh, Very wealthy, very prosperous. But it was also well known as being a very immoral city. That any evil you wanted to find, you could probably find it somewhere in Ephesus. In contrast to that, it had also become a great center for the gospel. So I always love to see those contrasts. You've got this huge darkness taking place, but at the same time, the Lord's doing a mighty work there, right? In Acts 19, uh, when Paul, this is one of the few places Paul spent a lot of time. He actually spent about three years in Ephesus. And he did, uh, it started off with this amazing revival where people were getting saved and burning their books of witchcraft and all of this other stuff going on. And then Paul stays there for about three years and does this school of ministry where people are coming in. They're not only learning the gospel, they're just learning from Paul about sharing the gospel. And it says that all of Asia was reached from there. So powerful place for the gospel. Now, some of the people that also did work in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila, and Apollos. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy to his protege, young Timothy, at that time, Timothy was pastoring the church of Ephesus, right? And then, of course, we've got the book of Ephesians written to this same church. But a lot of time has gone by since then, and um, the church has lost their focus. Now, I think what we're going to see is they didn't realize how much they'd lost, They didn't realize that they had gone off track. And the way that Jesus describes himself to them, the one that holds the seven stars and walks among the seven lampstands is important. It's not random. It's not just some arbitrary description of Jesus. Uh, It's what they need to remember. It's what they need to know about Jesus, that he is the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the golden lampstands. Now, he points out in verse 2, first of all, he starts off with what they're doing right. He says, I know your works and your labor and your patience, right? And he's not in any way saying this sarcastically. Uh, These are people that did not mind working hard. That whatever needed to get done, whatever hours they needed to put in, however they needed to do their thing or the work that was set before them, they did not mind working and laboring, Right? And that's a, that's a great trait that they had. And they've been doing this for a long time. They also had a love for holiness, right? It says you cannot stand those who are evil, that they had taken a stand against those things, and they couldn't bear those who were evil. And there are people who knew the word of God. When other teachers would come in, when false teachers would come in, and again, there was a lot of them, blowing through all the churches at this time. It says, You have tested those that say that they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. These people knew the word of God. Somebody came in, and again, a lot of times, in fact, most often, a false teacher is just a little off, just a degree off, right? The 90% of what they say is true. There's just that little bit. And these guys knew the word well enough to go wrong, you're a liar. And not only did they identify them and dismiss them from their church, you also get the sense they warned others. 
And so they would let other churches know, hey, look, this guy's coming around. If he shows up at your church, don't believe a word he says, right? And so they were very aggressive in, in correcting these people, right? These are all great things. When Paul, just to give us a little bit more backstory on the church there at Ephesus, in Acts 20, when Paul is making his final trip to Jerusalem, and every time he stops somewhere, people are telling Paul, you are going to be arrested. You are going to be in chains. This is going to end bad if you go to Jerusalem. And he's like, I've got to go. Right? And so he goes to, on his way to Jerusalem, he calls for the elders of Ephesus. And he tells them that savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also, from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Gives them this stern warning, like, look, guys, when I'm gone, these guys are going to swoop in right behind me. And so the church at Ephesus took that warning very seriously. And, and we see that. Even as Jesus recounts what they're doing right all these years later, I believe it is a result of Paul's warning, prophetic warning that he gave to them then, that they were ready for these guys that were going to come in. And again, it wasn't just those coming from the outside in, it was those rising up from among them. Two different places where these savage wolves were going to come from. And they have taken that warning seriously, and not just for a short season. Year after year after year, they've d done this. Verse 3, Jesus says, You have persevered and have had patience and have labored for my name's sake and not become weary. Now, if we just stopped there, we'd be like, that sounds like a great church. Man, they love the word of God. They don't put up with nonsense. They're serious about the things of the Lord. And I think even if we were to visit this church, we'd be like, hey, this seems great. All right? Man, they're preaching it. People are not being lighthearted about you know, the things of the Lord. They're very serious people. They love holiness. Um, they're doing some things that are right. And I think this, if, when they were hearing this, they probably would have went, hey, all right, yeah. We're doing all that stuff. Gold star for us, right? Um, but they lack one thing, just one. But the one thing they lack outweighs everything else. They're lacking the very most important thing there is, and it's the one thing that makes all the difference. Verse 4 says, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He was an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Again, up until that point, such a good report. And I think their hearts must have just sunk 
at the nevertheless, I have this against you. I mean, what a horrible thing to hear from the Lord himself. I have this against you. You have left your first love. Now, I think we get the wrong idea with that because of our culture, because of the way we use the word first love. It's usually in, in the context of like the first crush you ever had, right? And so it's like, oh, the first time you really thought you loved somebody and it was emotional and it was crazy and you were all goofy about it. That is not uh, what this is referring to. In fact, it is speaking of the first time that true love was shown to us. The word first means of the highest order. So the first time that love of the highest order was shown to us is Jesus. That's it. There's no, there's no other comparison. No one else. And he says that they have left their first love. That's important. They haven't lost it. They haven't misplaced it. They haven't forgotten about it. They have left it. There's a huge difference between losing something and leaving something. There was a choice somewhere along the way. And I don't think it was a single choice. I think it was a bunch of little tiny ones. Very subtle choices that were made that caused them to exchange the love of Jesus Christ for something else. And caused them to be a church that is not founded or focused on the love of Jesus. So what did they leave it for? Um, Well, the first thing is, I believe they left it for the love of ministry. The work of ministry itself. And that that might sound odd to people, like, the work of ministry? How could you fall in love with that? It's easier than you think. And unfortunately, over the years of me being a pastor, I have known too many and seen too many pastors that have sacrificed their marriage and their family on the altar of ministry because they loved it so much. They loved the busyness of it and made themselves feel important by it. And building the machine of the church, that you can work so hard at building a ministry, you forget what it was all built for. I think if you were to ask these people, do you guys love Jesus? They'd be like, of course we do. Look at all the work we're doing. Look at all the stuff we've got going. Of course we love Jesus. Don't you see how hard I'm working here? I think the second thing, and this ties into what Jesus has said to them earlier about that they won't bear with those who are evil. In fact, they expose the false teachers. The problem is, is when that's not tempered by the love of Jesus Christ, it becomes legalism and self-righteousness. If it's not balanced by the love of Jesus Christ, then it's just loving to correct people. It's just loving to put them in their place. It's loving to find the moral high ground above them. And so I believe it's these two things that, again, very, very subtly, they have drifted, they have chosen to leave their first love. I believe these are people that love to speak truth, but they do not speak it in love. 
And that's a huge difference. We've all seen that. We've all done that and known that. That when we can say something that's true and do horrible damage to somebody and go, well, it's true. I mean, if they don't want to hear the truth, then that's their problem. No, because we're called not just to speak the truth. We're called to speak the truth in love. And these people have left that. Oh, they love to speak the truth. So what we find is that because they lack that one thing, they lack the love of Jesus, then they also lack empathy concerning others. They lack compassion. They lack grace. That when another person falls into a difficulty or into sin, instead of going, man, I can understand how you got there. Man, let me pray for you. Let me help you out. They just go, oh, sinner, right? Dismiss them. Basically, they just lack love. And we need to understand that's a big deal. Because I think, and and I don't know if it's a cultural thing, maybe in the United States, maybe it's just people in general. But I think we can kind of look at it and go, yeah, but look at everything else they're doing right. You know, and I've even had this conversation with people like, you know what, I just, I just don't love people. You know, I just, I don't, you know. And isn't it that big of a deal? Yeah, it's huge. Because again, it's the one thing this church lacks. They've got everything else going. I think of 1 Corinthians, where Paul talks about, man, I could prophesy, and I could have all wisdom, and I could have all faith, and I could move mountains, and I could do all these things. But if I do not have love, I am nothing. It is meaningless. Love. And again, loving Jesus is so much simpler than we make it. You know, we complicate it. We try and turn it into some formula. And the simple truth is, is the idea that we're just, we're taking in the, he, the love he already has for us. We're not trying to earn it. We're not trying to work for it. We're not trying to prove we're worthy of it. It's just receiving it into our lives. And then as we serve the other people around us, it's coming from the overflow of that love. Doesn't mean we always feel like loving them, but it's like, Lord, because you love me, you know what? Show me how to love them. And I want it to flow out of my actions and flow out of my words and be a reality in my life because you have made it a reality in my heart, right? It's it's really quite simple, but man, we can sure make it complicated. So where does this start? You know, as I studied through uh, Ephesians, and I'll tell you what, uh, the seven churches are something I personally have studied a lot. I'm fascinated with the seven churches. Um, so I'm going to have to pare it down a lot of stuff that it's like, oh, I could say this, I could say that. Just understand, there's a lot I'm choosing not to get into. But where does this start? Because nobody wakes up one morning and goes, you know what? I think I'm going to be a legalist. That sounds pretty good, right? It's a slow thing. It's, it's like I said, a ton of little decisions to leave the love of Christ. Um, I believe that probably the biggest factor is that it is based in fear. That when we have a fear of things that could go wrong or all the fears of the what-ifs, then it's part of our natural tendency is going, well, okay, if that were going to happen, then I'd want a, a, an answer for it. I'd want something where I've got my own little formula so that I don't have to worry about these things. And really, 
it, it starts establishing this idea of I just need to work harder. So I don't have to be afraid. I'm going to work harder, and I'm going to come up with a, the right formula for every situation, right? But then that formula becomes a rule. That rule becomes a personal law, and then I hold those laws of, over other people. Again, trying to get that moral high ground above them. Well, I keep all these things, and you don't. But it begins with the fear of what if. And starting to think that it's... that. It, the Lord, for some reason, isn't involved in our life in those areas, right? Instead of pressing in close to the Holy Spirit, pressing in close to the Lord, going, I need you to get me through this difficulty. I need you to get me through this fear. We start looking at our own strength. Well, I will do it like this, or my answer will be this. And, and so we think that it's, it's up to us to have it all figured out. That our works are somehow going to rescue us. And again, it's a very slow subtle journey. But it gives the idea, like Jesus took these things, whether it's your life or work or family or church, whatever it might be, just dumped it in your lap and went, well, you figure it out. I'm out of here. And was on his way. And then we're like, well, okay, I guess I got to figure it all out. And we got all this stress and worry. And, and it turns into this burden, this labor that we think we have to do. And again, while he, it's given in a positive, I believe that this is why Jesus pointed out I know your work. I know your labor. You guys have been working so hard. But the truth is you don't have to. Because he's right there in their midst. He has not abandoned them. He has not dumped it in their laps and went, there, okay, you take care of the church from now on. You handle it. He is right there in the midst. He's the one that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands. He's right there. He's holding their leaders in his hands. And then he gives them in verse 5 three things that they need to get back on track. And I love this because, again, this church, while it looks good on the outside, we get a little bit of the reality of what's really taking place. And the Lord could go, ah, sorry, done with you. Boop, you know, and off to the side they go. But instead, he's going, I want things to be made right. I want you guys to get back on track with me. And he gives such simple instruction. In verse 5, he says that they are to remember, that they are to repent, and then they are to do. Remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. For the church, the idea is, remember when you guys first started meeting? Remember when you were just, you know, in our case, maybe in their case as well, remember when you were just a little home church, just a handful of families, and, and you guys just loved Jesus so much? And you just wanted to talk about him all the time. And you'd see each other in town, and you'd go, yeah, yeah, what's up? And you'd encourage one another. And it was about the family of God building each other up and growing in faith with one another. Remember that? He says, look back and remember those days. Remember where you have fallen from. Remember what it was like to be in the love of Jesus that you've departed from. Repent. And this is a firm word, though this word appears a lot in Scripture. We don't ever want to get the idea that this is just, you know, a small thing. He's calling them to repent. And again, it's a big deal. 
Because the only thing you repent from is sin. So this lack of love, this departure from love, the Lord is saying, man, it's, this is sin. Now, I think people in this situation, in fact, I've talked to people who are really hung up. I mean, they are just like the, the poster child for the church of Ephesus. And I've had one person in particular say, you just tell me which of the Ten Commandments I've broken. Where have I gone wrong? What have I broken? What commandment? And I said, the greatest of all <laughs> is to love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, I love God. Well, Scripture says that if you don't love your neighbor, you don't love God. So which commandment have you broken? The greatest of them all. And the church needs to repent of that for leaving the love of the highest order that was shown to them. And I think, again, for a church, the idea that our hearts would break for the lost again. And remember when we first came to Christ, when we were first understanding our salvation, what we've been rescued from, that your heart broke for those who were lost. Even people who were mean, even people would, I, I had dear friends that were very upset that I'd become a Christian, that they felt betrayed. And at the time, all I remember is thinking, you are lost. And my heart broke for them. I wasn't offended because they were mad at me. I just, my, I just, I wept over them, right? It's good for us to, again, get back to the beginning. And all these things are, are about getting back to that beginning or looking back to that beginning, man, that we would let our hearts break for the lost, and we'd let our hearts break for other believers going through trials. Again, not just the, hey, brother, be warmed and fed and on our way. I'll pray for you, and then we forget all about praying for him. But, man, really honestly, letting our hearts break, allowing them to connect on a deeper level in our own lives. And then the next part is do the first works. Again, I love the, just the beauty and the simplicity of that. The idea is get back to the basics. Get back to the first things you did. As a church, what was the first thing? Man, we read the Word, and we talked about it, and we encouraged each other, and we wanted other people to be a part of it. We weren't building a machine. We were just learning about Jesus. I think for us individually, again, we think about when we first got saved. What were the first works we did? Well, very similar. Man, we wanted to, to spend time with the Lord. We wanted to spend time with other believers. We wanted to be around people that were as excited about Jesus as we were. Now, it's important that we don't look at this like some kind of checklist. What's being pointed to here, what the Lord's pointing out to this church, is about the motive, right? Because you could look at it and go, okay, well, in the first I did this, I would pray, and so we checked that off the list, and I would evangelize, and we checked that off the list. That's not what it's about. The idea is, what's the motive behind it? What excited you about the Lord then? What motivated you to know Him more? That the things that we did were simply because we love Jesus, not to get, not to gain, not to gain control of anything or to look spiritual. It's just for Jesus, right? And again, this is a serious thing. In verse 5, Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, he's not saying 
that he's going to destroy the church or burn, burn the building to the ground or anything like that. Um, he's telling them that they will no longer hold up his light. Remember, the whole point of a lampstand is to hold up the light. That's all it does. And he's saying, I'm going to remove your purpose. That's huge. How long can a church exist without Jesus? Well, we'd like to say, no, no time at all, but that's not true. They can last generations. And they become cults, they become social clubs, they become political bodies, but they do not hold up the light of Jesus. They have ceased to have actual purpose. They make no impact on eternity or for heaven. And why would Jesus do that? Why would he remove that purpose from them? Because they are misrepresenting his character. And again, it's a huge deal. When Moses snapped, well, Moses snapped a couple times. There was one big time where he snapped. And and he was supposed to go out and, and uh, give water to the people. And the Lord just told him, go out and speak to the rock. Water will come out. And he went out and he took his staff and he's like, must we show you sinners? <laughs> you know? And he's freaking out and he strikes the rock and water comes out and he goes back in. The Lord, and the Lord tells him, you misrepresented me. I wasn't angry with the people. And because of that, you will not enter the promised land. It's a big deal to misrepresent the Lord. And this church would not be allowed to continue to misrepresent the Lord because it isn't rules and laws and all those things that represent Him. It is love. It's the greatest thing that represents Him. And if you remove that or you minimize that or you depart from that, you are not representing the Lord. Now, after this correction, he brings out something interesting, and it seems very random to some degree, uh, but I think it ties in uh, better than we would think at first. In verse 6, he says, But you have this, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, What were the deeds, and who were the Nicolaitans? Um, Not a lot is known. Very few things are known about the Nicolaitans. They'll be brought up again uh, as we continue on here in Revelation. What we do know is that they had a thing, and they were a cult that was taking off at this time, one of the cults that was getting a lot of speed. But one of the things that they were doing is that they were teaching that the leaders or the pastors of their groups were on a different plane than everybody else. They were not just gifted, they were beyond. And it was the first time where there was the clergy and the laity. There are those called by God, and they're on this other level, and then there's everyone else, all the other lowlings, you know. And they did that to justify all kinds of sin. That the leaders could do anything, take anything, commit any sin at all, and go, well, it's because I'm above you. And people were falling for it. And again, absolutely just evil stuff was going on. Now, uh, church history 
points to the person that started the Nicolaitans as a guy named Nicholas. The same Nicholas that was given, whose name's given in Acts chapter, excuse me, Acts chapter six. If you remember the the church is starting to grow, and there's some problems taking place. Some of the widows have been forgotten. And so the disciples go, you know, we need to raise up some young men who are full of the Lord and just want to serve and all these other things, and they choose nine. We always think of Stephen, right? Stephen was the one, fired up, loved the Lord, ends up giving his life as he testifies to the Lord. But among that list of nine is Nicholas. And that we're told, again, church history, not in Scripture, that he began this group because he wanted power. Because he wanted to be above the others. And I think it's worth taking note that when Jesus says, I hate that, he doesn't say, I hate things very often. The idea that any person would set themselves above another, more spiritual, more godly on a different plane, the Lord says, I hate that. And the reason he brings that out to this church, again, it seems random, but the reason I believe he he brings it out to Ephesus is that they still know they're sinners. That while they've gotten off track and they've gotten caught up in legalism and all these things, they still know they're sinners saved by grace. They haven't bought into this teaching of the deeds that somehow they've attained something higher. And the Lord is just one more word of encouragement after this rebuke to go, you guys have not bought into that. And you hate it, and so do I. Now, the good news is, is that church history also tells us that Ephesus heard this warning in Revelation chapter 2 and took it seriously, that they did repent. In fact, they became known in that whole region of the world as being a church that loved Jesus and loved people, right? That's encouraging to me, right? Because again, they were going in the wrong direction, and they've been going that way for years. But... The Lord knew how to bring them back. And they had the heart to receive correction. Right? And there's still a lot that is going to happen. This is a long road probably for them because since they've been going that way for years, now it's a matter of, okay, okay, everybody, we're changing direction. We all need to repent. Not everyone's going to be happy with that. People are going to be offended. People are going to be angry. People are going to be upset. What do you mean we're not going to be legalistic? And what about all of our rules and all the hard work we've been doing? So there was a long road, but they would be faithful to do it. Now, we could just take it there and go, okay, that's great. You know, this is very interesting, all about the church of Ephesus, and, and I don't really know how it applies to us, but sure, good for them, right? And we can even look at it and say, well, sure, there's churches like that today, caught up in legalism, caught up in all their rules and laws, and, you know, we know to avoid them, or, you know, hopefully the Lord will cause them to repent as well. But I I believe that there's a greater application. And we're going to do this with every one of these churches. Because while the church is the greatest picture of the lampstand, right? The church's purpose, sole purpose, is to hold up the light of Jesus. There are other things that hold up the light of Jesus as well. And I believe they're within the church, right? We as individuals, that's part of our calling. Our families hold up the light of Jesus. And again, specifically, our marriages hold up the light of Jesus. So what does it look like in these things? Well, I think 
The temptation is the same. That when life becomes hard, when fear starts creeping in and we're overwhelmed by the what-ifs, it's very easy to think, I just need to work harder. I just need to do more. I need to have that formula, that plan, something. And we forget that Jesus is right there with us. And we start just doing things on our own. That we've got to be those that are just pressing in closer to Jesus. And I really challenge you to pray through this, to think through this, but to pray through this as well. What is that area of your life? You know, if it's your marriage and you're like, man, I tell you what, I, I feel like my spouse is just a lot of work right now. I feel like it, it doesn't, and everybody's laughing. Don't laugh, this is serious stuff. Everyone's like, yeah, just not, not just right now, you know. It's been that way for a while. I knew that was going to get a laugh. And I'm like, no, we're going to be serious. Serious stuff here. But honestly, there are those times where we're like, it's just a lot of work. And I guess I just need to work harder. I guess I just need to make this happen. I need to make this work. I need to keep them in line or, or whatever it is. I, I, I've got to do more. And you've got to remember, Jesus is right there in your midst. He wants your life individually, your marriage your family, to hold up his light. And so whatever that is, the instruction for us is the same. We need to to remember how it was in the beginning, where it is that we have fallen from. And I think that's one of the most powerful things for a married couple, to just start remembering what it was like at the beginning. It doesn't mean it was all good. There's probably some huge hurdles that were overcome in the beginning, but remember it anyway. To repent. Let your heart break for that person, whoever they might be, whether it's a spouse or a, a family member or whoever it might be. Let your heart break for them again. And then do the things that you did at the beginning. Do the thing that's essential, the one thing that's needed. Love Jesus. And then let his love flow out of your life to them. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the power that is in your word. And we pray that you would continue to bring these things to our heart and our mind and show us how these work out in our own lives. That whatever that area might be, whether it's a a family member or a spouse or in the church, whatever, God, we want you to work in us that we might shine your light better, that we might hold your light up high, for the lost world to see. And Lord, that you would allow your love to be poured into us and that we would allow it to flow out to others, God. And we just pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.